This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on Sirius XM. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Women at Work on Business Radio. Welcome to Women at Work and our weekly conversation about how we can help more women join, stay, succeed, and lead in the workplace. I'm your host, Laura Zarrow, Executive Director of Wharton People Analytics. New episodes of Women at Work premiere on Thursdays at 5 p.m. Eastern. You can find our podcast 24-7 wherever you get yours. Be sure to follow the show on the channel's Twitter handle, at SXM Business, and find me on LinkedIn. As our regular listeners know, we bring you role models and experts to talk tactics and strategies for personal success. And we try and better understand the big forces that shape how we operate in the world. To that end, we've spent a fair amount of time learning to be brave and confident, cultivating the passion and perseverance that is grit. The thing that we haven't devoted nearly enough time to is the flip side of that equation, learning when and how to quit as a core part of winning in the long run, which is why I think today's guest is right on time. I know she is for me. Annie Duke is the author of Quit, The Power of Knowing When to Walk Away. Annie, welcome to Women at Work. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited to be at Wharton, you know, because I <laughs> I work there too. So. I know, and I'm excited to have you too. I want to introduce you a little bit to the audience, and then we'll get into the conversation if you don't Sorry. mind. It's okay. It's all part of the fun. If Annie's name sounds familiar, that might be because she's a former professional poker pay- player with more than $4 million in winnings. But she's a lot more than that. She's co-founder of the Alliance for Decision Education, a nonprofit whose mission is to improve lives by empowering students through decision skills education. She's the author of Thinking in Bets and How to Decide, special partner focused on decision science at First Round Capital Partners, a game-changing philanthropist, the mother of four, and and an actual PhD student who's just come back to Wharton. So, Annie, this is a lot that's going on in your life. You've... (laughs) (laughs) What made you decide, with all these things that you're doing, to write a book about quitting now? Well, actually, so part of the reason that I quit poker separate and apart from it was the correct decision in regards to poker itself is that um, I had started really diving headlong back into my academic kind of side of my life. So I did five years of Ph.D. work at the University of Pennsylvania um, in the psychology department right next door to Wharton, um, studying with uh, the amazing and incredible Lila Gleitman, who was is really one of the loves of my life. She she just passed um, in the summer of 2021. Um, and the reason why I left was not so much because uh, I hated I hated academics or I didn't want to become a professor. In, in fact, I very much did want to do that and had my job talks lined up, but I got sick. And I ended up in the hospital for a couple of weeks. It was very clear that I just needed to take some time off. I had to cancel my job talks and I was going to go back out on the job talk uh, market the next the next year. And um, during that time, that's when I found poker, mainly out of necessity. I needed money. <laughs> Girls got to eat. And um and it just turned out that I was good at it and I really loved it. And, you know, at that time, the University of Pennsylvania was a, really a hub for this kind of budding field called cognitive science, um, which was quite new at that time. And uh, it, it was really, I mean, it, it was really just an incredible interdisciplinary place to work and think about these issues of learning, you know, under conditions of uncertainty. And when I started playing poker, it's this very high stakes, fast paced version of you know, learning under uncertainty and how to actually solve for those problems. So I think that's, you know, it, it feels like it was something very different from what I was doing before, but um, there's a pretty good through line through what I was thinking about. So then flash forward to 2002, I get asked to speak to a group of options traders about how poker might inform risk. Um, I actually uh, talked about how poker informs uh, cognitive bias, right? Like how does cognitive bias kind of thrive in these kinds of environments? It was that moment that I really said, you know what? I, I actually really loved teaching. I really did. And I haven't done it for a while. And I kind of really love this. And actually now I'm really thinking in this very explicit way about how cognitive science and poker can have this really super interesting conversation. 
So I, I kept going with that. And I did that for 10 years while I was also playing poker. And at some point I had in my head that I really wanted to write this book called Thinking in Bets. Um, and I needed to free up time to do that. There were other reasons that I was, you know, leaving poker, but part of it was to go, to go really work on this book. Um, and I wrote that it was well received, then wrote how to decide and then got myself around to quit. Um, really honestly, because that is what I think about is how do we deal with decision-making or under uncertainty? And, you know, I would say, you know, if you think about thinking in bats, it's like, sort of laying out the problem mm -hmm. that we have as decision makers. And once you get around to quit, it's how really how do you solve for that problem? Uh, one is what this is one of the most valuable ways, one of the most valuable options we have in terms of solving for decision maker making under uncertainty. So, I, you know, I kind of think about like the beginning of my career and where I am now. And it looks like I've done a billion things, but I feel like I've always done the exact same thing. <laughs> yeah, there's a clear through line. You're exploring these um, deeply related topics that all affect the way that um, it's about decision making and reconsidering how we proceed. But woven into this, it's not just the thinking process. Um, and it, there's so much emotion involved in decision making, in walking away, um, making that decision. Um, and even though when you left your PhD program, you didn't really have a choice, um, those transitions have got to be complicated and painful. Um, how did you navigate that in your own heart? You clearly found another path where you could carry your ideas forward, but did it change your sense of yourself? So when I when I got sick in graduate school, this is I, I actually cover this in the book because, you know, I say sometimes quitting is voluntary and sometimes it's forced upon you. And that was definitely a situation where at least it, the initial decision was forced upon me. So my body just said no. I, I was in the hospital for two weeks. I had a, a, a stomach issue and um, and I honestly just needed money. And that's how I discovered poker. Now, at some point, I chose not to go back. And for me, interestingly, that was incredibly hard. And I think that it brings up some of the problems that we have with quitting. It's not only issues of like our own internal consistency. Um, well, you know, I did all of this stuff, but now I quit. Did I waste my time? Should I not have done that? So that's getting into, you know, some of these issues of like sunk cost and mm -hmm. so on and so forth. Um, but also, you know, the sense of failure that we feel at not having reached a goal. So my goal was to get a tenor track position. That's what my job interviews were for. And, um, you know, obviously I wasn't going to reach my goal. I fell short. And I think that's also incredibly hard for us. We aren't good at measuring progress along the way. And, and funnily enough, obviously, as I look back at my life, those five years of uh, that five years of work that I did, including qualifying in the field where you really have to have a broad um, knowledge of, of, of the literature serves me incredibly well. It was very important, yeah. but you don't count it right in the same way that if you're 300 feet from the summit of Everest, you're not counting the 29,000 feet that you already climbed. If you turn around, you just failed. You're short. Right. So I think that I was struggling with some of that. And then, there's also these issues that have to do with external validity, which is just, how do you think that other people are going to view you? And for me, that was probably the hardest part, a sense of having let Lila down, a sense of um, that they were ashamed of me or embarrassed of me, that they had put all of this time into my training that I had then abandoned and gone and played poker with, you know, so that was actually incredibly hard for me so much so that this was in a time before like cell phones and text yep. messages and like very easy ways to get in touch with each other. And obviously email, even then, um, you know, it's hard to figure out like if someone changed an email and that kind of right. thing, uh, you didn't carry your phone number with you. Like I still have a phone <laughs> number from Las Vegas. The last time I lived in Las Vegas was like 1998, right. <laughs> right? but it wasn't like that then. So it was very easy to lose touch with people. And, you know, I sort of read the losing touch as um, that they didn't want to be in touch with me. And then I also probably wasn't being, I know I wasn't being particularly aggressive about getting back in touch with them because I thought that they were embarrassed of me. 
So I, I actually only saw Lila again by complete serendipity. Um, I moved back to Philadelphia 10 years ago and was in a doctor's office and she was there. She was just it there. I mean, this was incredible. So I just went over and sat down next to her and said, hi. And the thing is, and I think this is so important to understand as, as these things can be very hard for us, is that all of those things that I thought just weren't true. So we spent the, the next decade together seeing each other once every week, except for during the pandemic when we were talking on the phone once every week. And we had very direct conversations where I told her, are you ashamed of me? That's what I felt like. And she was like, oh my gosh, no. You know, it, and she, you know, it was like, she just thought it was cool what I had done <laughs> and explained very clearly that as a mentor, you just want your student to go off and be happy, at least if you're a really good one. And hopefully they're using whatever training and whatever time you have with them to go find fulfillment, whether that's carrying on with the research that the mentor is doing or finding a new field of research or finding something completely different to do. And um, we, it was, you know, we went back to being incredibly close and, you know, the sad thing for me, and I think this is this is a lot of the problem with quitting, is that I lost two decades because of the way that I thought that I would be judged for having left. And all those feelings, I can empathize. Um, the degree to which the things that we do shape our perception of who we are and the way that we invest in, are nourished by, um, our attachments, the people who coach us and guide us, those are big feelings that we carry around. Big feelings, yeah. How long did it take you? Did they really remain unresolved until you reconnected with Lila? They were just kind of simmering yeah. there on the back burner? Oh, yeah. So fate Absolutely. gave you such an amazing gift that day at the doctor's office. Completely. Uh, I mean, not just not just the gift of like, uh, you know, the resolving of my own conscience, you know, but uh, which is minor compared to um, boy, I got a lot of time with her. Yeah, you got her back in your really, life. As I said, like, e even when I was in graduate school, she was absolutely one of the loves of my life, you know, like, uh, and partly because of technology, and partly because of my own internal monologue, um, lost a whole lot of time with her. And it's one of that's one of the great sadnesses of my life. And, you know, the, this great happiness is that we reconnected and I got so much time with her. You it's, know, I got a decade. That's yeah. a lot. And that is a huge, again, not looking at what was behind, but what you got ahead. That is a big yeah. gift. For those of you who just tuned in, this is Women at Work on Business Radio on Sirius XM Channel 132. And I'm your host, Laura Zarrow. My guest today is Annie Duke. She's the author of Quit, The Power of Knowing When to Walk Away. So, Annie, I think you have at least four other loves of your life. Those are your kids. And yes. <laughs> um, if I did my math right, you were actually playing poker while they were little and being born, which. I oh, my gosh. Yes. I started playing professional poker in 1994. I actually. So when I got sick, I moved to Montana because uh, my ex-husband now, but my husband at the time happened to have a house there, which was a pretty hilarious house, by the way. It cost eleven thousand dollars. And I think he got ripped off. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> like it didn't have a foundation. Like the the people who who bought it after us for $13,000, it was quite a profit. Um bulldozed it to put up a trailer, which, which was, was an upgrade. much nicer than what okay. we were. Yes, it was a huge upgrade. No, we didn't have hot water. Like it was whatever, but you know. So, um <laughs> But did so you anyway, have a great view point, at least, I hope. No, it was like in the valley and you couldn't even you didn't, couldn't even see the mountains. It was it was in Columbus, <laughs> Montana, which is a beautiful area, just not where this house happened to be sitting. So the value of the house was really the lot. I mean, <laughs> okay. that was the thing. So anyway, so but we went and lived there, which was um, quite something. And um, and at that point, you know, I'd started playing poker and became successful enough that I decided I was going to go professional. So this was during that time off from graduate school. And so we made the decision to move to Las Vegas um, uh, because that summer I had, or that spring I had played in the World Series of Poker and really had quite a bit of success. I had made $70,000, which, you know, we lived in an $11,000 <laughs> house. We're like, woohoo. Right. So, um, so decided we we're going to move to Las Vegas and I was going to play full time. And uh, I think it was maybe the day before, I mean, I think we had the U-Haul packed up the day before that I discovered I was pregnant. Surprise. So I was six weeks pregnant when we were on that U-Haul. 
Um, and I remember actually it was very funny. So so we moved down. We had bought a house in in Las in Las Vegas, and we moved down. And I remember my brother, who was a, a already a poker player, said to me, "Are you gonna? Are these mothering hormones gonna make you like play bad?" I was like, "Oh my god!" <laughs> like, He's your brother. Did you smack him? Yeah, I, I was. It was on the phone. I was like, you know, he goes, it's, I don't want you to mother everybody else's chips. You know, <laughs> so, so stupid. But anyway. So I went down. So the first year I was playing, I was actually pregnant. I had my first child in 1995. Um, in 2000, I came in 10th in the main event of the World Series of Poker and had my third child two weeks later. So you showed them a new version then- of what a champion could look like. Right. And then I had my last child in 2002, right as television was starting. So I actually missed the very first part of the television boom because I was very pregnant and then, you know, taking care of my my infant. So I I took some whatever maternity leave would be in a situation where you don't have a, a boss. But yeah, I was very pregnant during that last World Series. And, you know, it was interesting because and I remember thinking this at the time. Uh, I got a lot of heat saying, like, don't you care about your baby? Like, why are you playing poker when you're pregnant? And I'm like, would you say that to a lawyer? Right. Like, what are you talking about? Like, I'm just doing my job, which, by the way, involves sitting. (laughs) Right. And it sounds to me like you found possibly the most creative solution to a flexible work structure while you had young children. Well, that was the thing that was so great was uh at the level that I played, this isn't true of all levels, but the level of I play, I played, which was the highest limits, um, those those um, occurred at night. So I was actually like my kids sort of I think they kind of think of me as a stay at home mom. Like they didn't realize you were out while they were sleeping. Yeah. So so my ex-husband would take them to school. I would pick them up. Um, when they were little, I would just be with them. Right. So he would take whatever school age kids I right. had. To school and then I, I would pick them up and I would usually hang out until about nine at night, which was really their bedtime. So I would get them to bed and then I would go and play. It's so, kind of ideal. It go was figure. pretty great. <laughs> <laughs> so how did so as you're raising your kids, you've now got, you know, the almost all but the last moment of a Ph.D. program, in the depths of that education under your belt and you're putting it into practice playing poker. How did this inform the way that you parented? Not the schedule, but the way that you helped your kids think about taking chances or quitting or making choices. That's a really interesting question. Um, My kids use the word random an alarming amount. Like when they were little, (laughs) they would they would use the word like, I, I, you know, and I would say, say, oh, other kids aren't using this word random. Um, so I would really I, I worked really hard to try to help them to understand the difference of the influence of luck and the influence of skill. It was incredibly important for me for them to understand that the circumstances of our life were uh, there was a very strong influence of on luck uh, in how our lives were going. Um, but also that that did not mean that we hadn't worked for what we had because it's always the intersection of the two, right? But, you know, I was like the circumstance, I, you know, I try to say to them, look, if I was born in the 1600s, I would have been property. <laughs> I would not have owned property. So, you know, we have to remember, like I was born to parents who really cared about education. My father, whose dad never finished sixth grade um, because he was orphaned at sixth grade, they were um, immigrants from Eastern Europe, um, grew up in the Jewish ghetto in in Philadelphia, uh, 51st and Ellsworth, you may know where that is. I do. Um, Graduated from West Philly High, my dad did. Um, But he went on to get a PhD. And he ended up teaching at a school called St. Paul School, which is um, a very fancy boarding school, Episcopalian. My dad was the diversity there. He was the Jew. And um, and uh, because of that, part of the perks of that were that uh, your children got to go there for free. This is one of the top three boarding schools in the country. So 
look at that, right? Like, I mean, if you want to talk about sort of this intersection of luck and skill, it's like, uh, you know, immigrant parents, dad goes to West Philly High. Right. Urban public school. very hard. Right. But he works very hard. He gets into Penn and Haverford. He chose to go to Haverford because Penn was too close to his parents as far as he was concerned. (laughs) I made a similar choice at the time. (laughs) Right. He then he then gets into Harvard Law, switches because he decides he doesn't like the law after a year and gets a master's in English um, and teaching. That's how he ends up at St. Paul's. So, you know, there's you can see this combination of like the incredible hard work of my father but also the luck of that path, right? That then brings his children, whose grandfather graduated from sixth grade to St. Paul's school. Right. Right. And and I would try, I would really try to explain that to them. And I remember um that I, I felt like my kids, I really didn't want my kids to feel any pressure because I had gone to Columbia for for college. And I didn't want them to feel any pressure in terms of feeling like they need to live up to that. So I'd always explain to them this luck path into St. Paul's and then explaining that St. once you went to St. Paul's, the chances you were going to get into an Ivy League school were just ridiculously high. Yeah. And um, that that was, you know, that they needed to understand that somehow I wasn't saying that that was all me. Right. I mean, obviously, I had to get the grades and the SAT scores to do it. But like compared to other like it was just. It was just much easier at that time in in the class that I went to, which was 120 people, I think 71 of them went to an Ivy League school. That's a crazy percentage. There's actually an interesting New York Times article, I think, about this recently, that this is a real pattern. It's a thing. It's a thing. And so I would say to my kids, look, my dad worked really hard, right? His dad did not get any education. We can thank him for that. But I don't expect you to be able to achieve the same path, because even if I sent you to St. Paul's, it wouldn't be the same path now, because St. Paul's now it's more like 20 something, because the world has changed a lot then. And it's a lot harder. More people are going to college. Um, And so I would try to, you know, and I think that um, we, you know, there's something called self-serving bias, which is the things that go well in our lives. We really, really have this bias toward taking credit for them. Mm -hmm. And the things that go poorly in our lives, we have a very strong bias to blame them on luck. And I did not want my children to think that way. I didn't want them to see me think that way. I didn't want them to think that somehow it was 100% my skill and smarts and industriousness that had got me into Columbia because I didn't feel that that was a true story. And I also felt it would do harm to them to hear that. So I think that, you know, in that way, like, the one thing poker, poker teaches you is the intersection of skill and luck, right? Like you're going to come away understanding that. And so I felt like that was a very important lesson that I had gotten from that. And I wanted to give that lesson to my children. Annie, it sounds like you actually did two profoundly important things with this. Um, and kind of 20 years ahead of the way that we now talk about privilege, you were introducing your kids to that concept in really relatable ways. But you were also, it sounds like, protecting them from feeling like they had to perform like the other people in their family and be measured by um, these affiliations. And instead, to recognize that in their own lives, they could develop their own skill they would have their own luck and their path could unfold in unexpected ways. Did they realize what, what a yeah. gift this was? You know, who knows? I don't know. They're, they're, you know, they're young adults now. I don't know if they realize that. But I will say like one of, one of the proudest things that I can say is that none of my children are doing what I did. I'm not just talking about poker, I'm saying like academics or cognitive science or anything like that. So um, I have one child who translates Japanese to English. Oh, that's cool. Cool. Really? Yeah. Uh, Are you going to be famous for it? No. Right. But she's she's really happy. She doesn't feel that need to do something that is public facing or what would generally be considered to be um, world changing. Right. And she loves it. She loves she's so happy and I'm so happy for her. I have another child who's in policy, works on carbon capture. Cool, right? And thank you for doing Um, that work. We all need smart people there. My third child just finished um, BU and she's a nanny and she's so happy. 
it's like totally her calling. And I'm like, isn't that amazing? It is amazing. And, and and while our listeners hear us on radio, I'm seeing you over Zoom. And to see the look on your face when you're describing happy kids. They're so happy. And my fourth child is a coder. Like not a single one of them has anything to do with me. None of them felt they needed to go to graduate school. None of them felt like they needed to write books or be on television or any of that stuff. It was like always like you be you, you, you decide what makes you happy. And that was something because I, I did, I really lived. One of the things that I was so scared of is that by existing, they would feel pressure. Right. Just by virtue because of I understood who you were. That I had an unusual life, like not, not in an ego type of way. I mean, I was a world champion poker player <laughs> on television and I'm a best selling author now. Right. When I was in graduate school, I had a National Science Foundation fellowship. I understand how that can read right to other people, whether I feel like an imposter and I don't feel like I deserve all that stuff or whatever. It's completely irrelevant. I'm trying to think about if I were the child of me, how would I feel? And it sounds and, like what yeah. you did, Annie, that was so amazing was that, you know, we can't be what we don't see. You you know, we model for our kids whether we intend to or not. But you yeah. overrode the labels and the um, the way that the labels were connected with identity to focus instead on modeling happiness and choice. And it sounds like it I really so. rewarded them. I hope so. They seem to be doing okay. <laughs> I hope so. But, you know, I mean, that was, I mean, I, I, I think that that was one of my greatest fears was that uh, my existence was going to be bad in, in a certain sense, right, um, for them. And I, you know, and I, I really didn't, I didn't really want them for that. I, pr probably partly because my, my parents were quite academic. I mean, my, my father obviously uh, went to Harvard right. in the end and, you know, got a PhD. My, they met at Harvard and um, uh, very high achievers. And, and I think that I felt that on that sense of living up to living up to the family. Um, and um, and in some ways that was explicitly said. Okay. And, you know, and so I was I was a little. You know, I was raised a little bit. The I mean, I, I love my dad. He is absolutely wonderful. My our, my mother isn't with us anymore. But um, uh, and my my father and I have had. I, I actually just saw a video of my father speaking, um, uh, where he said that he he never put any pressure on the kids, and I called him up and just started. <laughs> bursting out laughing and said, what on earth are you talking about, dad? And we had a frank conversation and he did admit that he could see how perhaps he had put quite a bit. Of, I said, when your father tells you about how they never miss a day of work, even if they're sick as a dog, because work is the most important thing in yeah, the world. That's, what do you think that message is? That's just a little pressure. And we have a little pressure right now because we have to take a short okay. break. But don't go away. When we come back, I'm going to continue my conversation with Annie Duke about her book, Quit, and all the amazing amazing things we can learn from her. I'm Laura Zarrow, and this is Women at Work on Business Radio, Sirius XM, Channel 132. You're listening to Women at Work on Business Radio. Welcome back to Women at Work and our weekly conversation about how we can help more women join, stay, succeed, and lead in the workplace. I'm your host, Laura Zarrow, and my guest this hour is Annie Duke. And we're talking about her book, Quit, The Power of Knowing When to Walk Away. Annie's a special partner focused on decision science at First Round Capital Partners and the co-founder of the nonprofit Alliance for Decision Making, who has also leveraged her experience in the science of smart decision making to excel at pursuits as varied as championship poker, storytelling, teaching, philanthropy, and as we discussed in our last half hour, parenting. Annie, thanks for being here with us. Thank you for having me. So quitting is usually characterized as the easy thing to do, especially when I think about like the messages I got from my parents um, that it's, it's a reflection of a weak character, except something that I've always felt and now I understand in much more dimension thanks to the book, it's really hard to do. And that's a very one-dimensional way of looking at something that requires like real courage and discipline. Why is it such an unrecognized virtue? Yeah, so I think it's so interesting because when we think about who are the heroes of our stories, they're the ones who persevere. Right, persevere through the hard times. The cowards, the villains of our stories are the ones that like run away, right? <laughs> like run away from the battle. Like, um, 
And that's broadly the way that we think about sort of sticking to things and, and quitting things, right? Like if you stick to things, it's a sign of character. Um, if you quit things, you're weak-willed. Um, you're cowardly. So uh, there, I think there's a variety of reasons for this that have to do with the fact that we just have a lot of cognitive biases and motivational forces also that are kind of lined up behind us to make quitting very hard for us, which in the end should make us realize that when we think about these stories, that quitting can really be an act of courage. So like, let's think about why. All right. So I want to tell you a story so that we, I can kind of see, we can kind of get to this act of courage thing. All right. So there's this woman, Siobhan O'Keefe, and she entered the 2019 uh, London Marathon. And on mile four, she starts to experience pretty bad pain in her leg. And on mile eight, her fibula bone snaps. Oh, my God. And I've run a marathon and I've broken my fibula. Both are really painful. Both are really painful. So now she's had both of them happen at the same time. Okay. So obviously the, the medical personnel advise her to stop, but she doesn't. She keeps running and she finishes the race. Risking clearly damage to her leg, a compound fracture that's going to make it so possibly she can't win win another marathon again. We can talk about what makes her keep going toward the finish line. But here's the question that I have for you, right? Like, I understand that from a rational standpoint, you're like, she really should have quit, right? But I want you to think a little emotionally. Don't you kind of admire her? Oh, my God. The the minute I read about her, I had such my first reaction was that's insane. But oh, my God, what a hero. The kind of tenacity that's reflected in that to to be so driven that you override that much pain. Like I can't imagine anything like childbirth, but you get a really big payoff at the end of childbirth. (laughs) That's why I did it four times. So, um, yeah. So this is interesting. So we know from a rational standpoint, this is a ridiculous decision. Yeah. I assume her goal is to not finish that marathon. She was a marathon runner. And 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 she was a competitive marathon runner. Unrunner. She wasn't just like me doing this, like, and it takes right. five it's hours. It's the only time you're right? ever going to get to do it, at which point it would still be silly because you could just enter a different one. Right. Um, but she's actually making it, she's lowering the probability by a lot that she'll ever be able to run another marathon again and increasing, even if she can, she's increasing the time mm-hmm. that it's going to take her to be able to do it. There was another runner, I think called Stephen Quayle, who in the same marathon broke his ankle, kept running. And he had planned to run seven marathons that year and was unable to because he kept running on the broken ankle. So rationally, we can see that this is a terrible choice. <laughs> right. Right. And Right. Because the, the, this is the thing, like quitting is a virtue also. Like we think about grit is a virtue, but the opposite of a great virtue is also a virtue. And so quitting under these circumstances would be a virtue. And yet we admire her. And this brings up the first reason why quitting is an act of courage. Because if you quit, you don't get any of the kudos. In fact, in a lot of circumstances, you get called a loser. If I call you a quitter, I'm calling you a loser. Right. It fundamentally has a negative connotation. Right. So, but if you keep going, even in circumstances where objectively it's complete folly, you will be admired. So as we sit there and say, oh, that was so amazing that she kept going. In some ways, it's the easier choice because you know that people are going to think you're a badass. Yeah, right. Whereas if you quit, who knows? So uh, here's another example of this problem that I think is on a much bigger scale. So I'm sure you're familiar with lots of the stories about climbing Everest, mm-hmm. which are great stories about grit. So just because, you know, I like to be a contrarian, I love to tell us, I'm going to tell a story about quitting on Everest. And here we're going to see again that quitting can be an act of courage for a variety of reasons. So um, this story is about uh Dr. Stuart Hutchinson, John Tasky, and Dr. Luke Kosicki. And they're uh, part of a climbing expedition in the 90s when, you know, all those books were written and everything. And there's eight climbers, three climbing Sherpas, and an expedition leader. So they get up to camp four because you have to go, you know, base camp to camp one, two, three, and then four. And then you're allowed to go summit. They get up to camp four and the expedition leader has set what's called a turnaround time. 
before that climb. And the turnaround time is 1 p.m. And all it means is that no matter where you are on the mountain, if it's 1 p.m., I don't care if you're to the summit yet. If it's 1 p.m., you must turn around and go back to uh, Camp 4. The reason being that after 1 p.m., it becomes too likely you're going to descend in darkness. Uh, and that means you're going to have to traverse a very narrow part of the mountain called the Southeast Ridge. Uh, and if you do that in darkness and you slip, uh, you'll fall to your death either into Nepal or Tibet. Yeah, we don't want either of those things to happen. No. Right. <laughs> that would be bad. <laughs> right. Um, so, okay. So our three climbers are going up. This was, you know, at a time when it was becoming very popular to have these expeditions. So there was like actually a traffic jam <laughs> trying to get <laughs> to the It's comical to think about it, but... It's a traffic jam because mo- most of the ways that you go up, you have to kind of go in single file. So you, these these jam ups can occur. And for the people um, who are doing this, especially as this becomes so popular, how long do they train for and how much money does it take? Oh, my God. It's like it's months and months and months. Of, it takes like a year of your life. A, and I think at this time, it's seventy thousand dollars. Now I think it's like one fifty. It's a major emotional, physical, financial investment. Exactly. So uh, so they're climbing and it's very slow going. And their expedition leader comes up behind them and they stop the expedition leader and say, hey, uh, how long do you think it's going to be till we get to the mountain, to the summit rather? And uh, the expedition leader says, uh, I think it's going to be about three hours from here. They're about 300 feet from the summit, but it's, you know, it's Everest. If you don't just <laughs> right. go. <laughs> right. So it takes a while. Right. Um, so the expedition leader c- continues on past them. And, uh, Hutchinson holds Taskin and Kasitsky back and says, we have a problem because it's almost 1130. And so if it's three hours to the summit, we're not going to get to the summit until 230. And that's well past the turnaround time. It seems to me we should turn around now. They have a little discussion about it uh, and they decide to turn around and they go back to camp four and they live. Now, it's probably not surprising to you. I never heard of these people (laughs) Um, because that doesn't seem like much of a story. Who's going to write a book or make a movie about that? Um, but the thing is that uh, they were part of a book and a movie, and the book was called Into Thin Air, written by John Krakauer, because they were part of Rob Hall's expedition. Rob Hall was their expedition leader, in fact, um, who did continue up to the mountain. He got there at 2 p.m., an hour past the turnaround time, uh, waited at the summit until 4 p.m. for his client, Doug Hall, to arrive. Now, I want to be clear, because it's kind of single file. If Rob Hall had headed back down at 2 p.m., he could have got caught. Doug Hansen along the way and brought him back down with him. But he waited for Doug Hansen to summit at 4 p.m. Doug Hansen immediately collapsed. Um, and then Rob ha- uh, Hall perished on top of the mountain. Maybe they weren't in the book. Probably asking that. Yes, they were. <laughs> in fact, Krakauer called them the best decision makers on the mountain that day. But here's where I think that we get into this idea that quitting can be an act of courage. Let's, let's think about the forces that were working against our three climbers. Well, first of all, we know one force was you're not getting any kudos for it because even though they turned around and lived, nobody remembers them. Everybody remembers Rob Hall and Doug Hansen. And in fact, they are the, the heroes of that story. Rob Hall in particular is, is a hero for waiting for Doug Hansen on top of the mountain, despite the fact that he perished. But this is despite a tragic fact- heroism. Well, and because he could have gone back down and caught him along the way, too. So there's a variety. But anyway, he's the hero of the story. I'm not trying to diss Rob Hall. No. He was waiting for his client. but but And we can relate clearly... to, we could relate and admire, as we were talking about, what made them do it, except that it right, was, exactly. in the long run, this was not smart decision making. Exactly. Meanwhile, these three dudes are invisible to us, right? So that's number one. Number two, as you just said, you have to give up you have to be saying like i spent seventy thousand, and i'm not going to make it to the summit just no matter that you climb twenty nine thousand feet it doesn't matter right we think of ourselves as short of the summit so they're having to turn around short of our goal it's part of the reason why siobhan o'keefe keeps running if siobhan o'keefe broke her leg uh, in a, a eight mile race she would have stopped at eight miles because she would have been to her goal, right? So these goals can cause us to continue to go toward them, which is a problem in this particular case as well, right? Is they have to turn around short of that goal, feeling like they'll have wasted all of the time and energy and money. They have to worry about what other people are going to say when they get home. You turn around 300 feet from the summit. What are you idiots? And they have to worry about those what ifs. Because remember, 
we worry about what ifs no matter what. Like, what if I had stayed in that relationship and it had been great? What if I had done this and it had been great? Which make it very hard for turn us for for us to turn around. But for them, there were people who were continuing on. What if nothing happened to them and they made it to the summit and made it back down? And now these people have given up their chance. So think about all of that stuff that's working against them, actually following the rules, turning around and remaining safe. That is an act of heroism. If you just tuned in, this is Women at Work on Business Radio on Sirius XM Channel 132. And I'm your host, Laura Zarrow. I'm talking with Annie Duke, the author of Quit, The Power of Knowing When to Walk Away. So, Annie, in this extraordinary story, um, there are two pieces that I'd like to explore. So one is it seemed like the group that came down, it wasn't just individual decision-making. It was the role that other people can have in how we make decisions. And that there was a rule that was established in advance that some followed and some didn't. Can you talk about those two things? Sure. So one of the things that decades of science has blown up, one of the intuitions that decades of science has blown up, starting with a man named Barry Staw back in the 70s, is that we have the intuition that when we get signals from the world that we ought to stop doing something, that we will pay attention. So we can think about this. When we start something, we know very little, right, in comparison to all there is going to be known, and there's going to be luck involved as well. So think about, like, when you take a job, what do you really know about the job? Right. Like, nothing. What you uh, think you, you know, but a year later, you realize how little you knew. I mean, you you had, like, a few interviews, and you, like, Googled them. Right. Like and Got some advice from people, but that's not your experience in that place. No. Right. And that's true whether you're on the hiring end or the, you know, when you hire an employee, you know very little about them. When you get into, I mean, when you get into a marriage, you know, when you're 25, you don't know what you're going to be like when you're 40. That one's hard. Right. So, and that's true of anything, you know, like, and, and obviously the more innovative something is, the more that that's true. Um, But so what that means is that once you start something, there will be information discovery that's going to occur after the fact. And I'm sure you've had that feeling of, if I knew then what I know now, I would have made a different decision. So that's that feeling of that exertion of hidden information on the outcome of your decision. Oh, shoot, now I've learned a whole bunch of stuff. So we have an intuition that when we learn that stuff, we'll quit. Okay, like if I break my leg in the middle of the marathon, I'll quit. (laughs) But Um, And it turns out, and again, this started with Barry Staw, that intuition is just wrong. (laughs) Right. (laughs) We're not that rational. We don't do it because we do all sorts of things like, you know, well, you know, if I quit my job now, I'll have wasted all of the time that I've already spent in it. I'll have wasted all of my training and the onboarding and getting to know the culture. And so I can't stop now. Right. Which, of course, is just the sunk cost fallacy, because it doesn't matter what you already put into something. It matters whether it's worth it to continue going forward. And I'm sure we all know people who uh, have for example, stayed in relationships where they were deeply unhappy. They stayed because of all the forces that make it hard to quit, including, by the way, the fear of the unknown. What if I'm alone? Right. What if what I, if I never get person? this chance again? Right. And then now it's a year later and they're still unhappy. And then it's a year after that and they're still unhappy. And what's the real waste? The year that they already put into it or the new the year they spent after they've already found the information out that it's not something it's that's the worth future it. happiness that they're forfeiting. Because they're never going to be able to pursue it. Exactly. So this fear of wasting what we've already spent causes us to waste going forward. All right. So so, uh, that's just one of the many reasons. There's also issues of identity. We've talked about this problem of finish lines and what that means to stop before the finish line. But so that intuition is just wrong. When we see the signals, we do not act rationally toward them. Uh, It's what Daniel Kahneman calls being in it. Yep. Um, and the way that I like to think about being in it is you're trying to eat healthy, but there's an open box of chocolates right in front of you. <laughs> right. <laughs> so when it comes to quitting, the the when you decide to quit, that's the moment that you have to abandon all of those resources or what you've already lost or or decide that you're willing to quit short of the finish line and close that account and the losses. And those things are very hard to worry about what other people are going to think of you the way that I worried about my advisors having bad thoughts about me. Um, So that moment is very hard for us when we're facing it down. When it's easier for us is when we can get some, some space, right? When we can get some space away from it. It's easier for us. And what that means is that we want to think in advance 
about what those signals might be that we would see that would tell us that we ought to quit. So that's a simple version of that is the turnaround time is that people have thought in advance and said, what's the time at which you really need to be turning around on Everest? Um, They decided it was 1 p.m. And then they tell people, if it's 1 p.m., you should turn around. So in so and yeah. there so this and in the book you explain it as it's having kill criteria. It's establishing, yeah. um, looking at the past. Let me see if I got this right, and so that you can either you can confirm or correct that. Even if we're going forward in something where we don't know exactly what's going to happen, we can be informed by past experiences and what we understand right. the risks might be. And so by examining that, determining where are benchmarks that we want to you know, measure what's going on, take the temperature, get some information, that can help us not give up the future by recognizing yes. when it's time to stop. Yeah, exactly. So like, here's an example of doing it with a... a, a- a sales org. So there, there were sell, there SaaS companies selling software. And we know that sellers, like everything is about closing the deal. And in fact, people manage to it, which is quite bad, right? Because closing mm-hmm. the deal is a finish line. We don't want people spending time on a prospect that isn't actually worth spending time on because that's capital attention that they could be putting towards stuff that's more worthwhile. So we actually want, we want two things to happen, either close the deal or qualify it out as early as possible. Right. So we want we want this kind of like very dichotomous um, world to exist. OK, so I did this with with the sellers. I said, OK, imagine you got a lead through an RFP or RFI. It's six months later. You have lost the deal. Looking back, you were you realized there were early signals that that was going to occur. What were they? And they were just things like they already had a competitor installed or the, the prospect only wanted to talk about price and you know, those kinds of things that would seem like they would be obvious. But the thing was that they were trying to push through those things before. No, I know I can still win it away from the competitor that they have installed. So we created that list. And what it did was created a culture around when you're doing deal review Mm -hmm. and we're thinking about what's going on with this deal, we're going to go through the kill criteria. We're going to see if any of that stuff is happening. And if it is, and it's very clear, I'm going to ask you why you haven't qualified out. And I'm going to really encourage you to do that. So now what happens is that it makes it less scary to quit because not only are they thinking about it in advance, they're better at noticing the signals, but they know they're being managed to that outcome now because everybody becomes on board with it. And this allows the sellers to spend their time on the accounts that matter and qualify um, out the ones as quickly as possible that don't. So it it acts like a turnaround time on Everest. Now notice I said a manager is supposed to be helping you with this. To your point, Hutchinson on the mountain, really coach Tasky and Kasitsky here to turn around. So this is another thing is that getting someone outside mm-hmm. of yourself to help you make this decision is always going to be better. Because when we think about being in it, when we're in the decision, other people from the outside looking in aren't in the decision with us. It's why we can see when our friends should have stopped the relationship a long time <laughs> right. ago or quit their job or whatever, because we can see it more clearly than they do. So if we can, for ourselves, recruit people into the um, in into the problem with us and help them to advise us or mentor us, well, a therapist or a mentor right. or whoever. And we recently... And as a reminder to our listeners, we recently talked with uh, Lisa Vesterlund, who worked with Linda Babcock and wrote The No Club. And it was um, profound to see what the difference could be in the effectiveness of your decision making if you involved other people, if you established neutral criteria and involved other people in the decision making process. But they have to be people you trust who you know will tell you the truth. Right. That's exactly right. So another thing, and we only have a few minutes left, but it was one of the things in the book that really struck me as a creative person who's always doing strategic innovation, um, and it was monkeys and pedestals. And it's how do we make decisions about the things that we think are amazing ideas and how we bring them to life and how we can sort the assessment so that we know when are, when should we pull away and when should we proceed? Yeah, so... Let, again, we want to talk about this problem with uncertainty, right? That when we decide things, we're usually under conditions of great uncertainty. Now, interestingly enough, when we think about like those finish line problems, when we decide to quit something, it's also under uncertainty. That's kind of a paradox there. So uh, we tend to want to push up against 
um, being certain that there's no other way because we don't want like those what ifs and whatever. So um, as Richard Thaler said, we won't quit until it's no longer a choice because we already fell into the crevasse. What could we do? <laughs> so, you know, you don't quit your job until you're so miserable you can't even get out of bed. Right. Um, so but the, but monkeys and pedestals really applies to these very uncertain environments. So what we understand is that as we're doing things that are innovative, because if it's an incremental improvement, there's not a lot of uncertainty. But let's assume we're trying to do something innovative. Um, we have to remember that there's a danger to starting, which is that we won't stop. Because we know if we if we if we anticipate that danger, because as we start to work on it, our identity gets tied into it. We own the the, the output. Um, there's sunk costs, so on and so forth. There's a finish line. Right. All that stuff. No, there's going to be forces that are going to stop us. Then what we have to do is be very careful about how we enter into starting things. By careful, I don't mean slow. In fact, this should speed you up in entering into things. By careful, I mean when you start something, you need to clearly lay out kill criteria, share those with people, generally create those as a team is going to help so that you've got buying across the team. So that's going to help you with that stopping problem once you've started it. But then also you want to do a monkeys and pedestals exercise, which goes like this. Um, so this is from Astro Teller, CEO, or otherwise known as Captain of Moonshots. Um, over at um, X, which is the innovation hub for Google. Um, and monkeys and pedestals goes like this. So Laura, let's say that you're, uh, you've decided you wanna train a monkey to juggle flaming torches while standing on a pedestal in a town square. Maybe you're gonna put them out on locust walk and then <laughs> throw money at you. <laughs> like, a fun afternoon well, on it the would be pretty exciting. Right. <laughs> pretty exciting. So um, if you decide that you wanna do that project, this would be quite innovative. Uh, there's two things that you need to do. Figure out if you can get the monkey to juggle the flaming torches. That's thing number one. Thing number two is build the pedestal. Right. So when you approach that, what are you supposed to attack first? Um, and the answer is you're supposed to see if you can get that monkey to juggle the flaming <laughs> torches first for a variety of reasons. One, that's the unknown. Right. That's the really hard part. Right. It's the bottleneck to the whole system. Right. If you can't do that, What's the point of doing anything else? <laughs> right. Don't even buy, don't buy the monkey a cute outfit, nothing, because there's no point in it unless you can actually get the monkey to juggle the torches. So you don't want to build the pedestal first because the pedestal actually doesn't represent any real progress because you already know that you can build the pedestal. Right. It represents false progress and there's no point in doing it if you can't do the other part. Right. And then there's a third thing, which is if you build the pedestal first and it turns out it's hard to train the monkey, it, it will, the pedestal building will make it harder for you to quit because that represents sunk cost, cost. And endowment and so on and so forth, right? So when we approach projects, we want to say, what are the monkeys? Do those first before you build pedestals. Annie, yeah. it's been such a treat today. Thank you so much for joining us. I'm so sorry we're out of time. If any of you listening have a question about anything you heard on today's show, email us at businessradio at SiriusXM.com. And you can find our podcast 24-7 wherever you get yours. Be sure to follow the show on the channel's Twitter, hand Twitter handle at XM at SXM Business and find me on LinkedIn. Thank, Thank you so much to my team, Kara Pogue, my producer, Patty Hall, Dion Simpkins, our sound engineer, Chris Tukes. I'm Laura Zarrow, and you've been listening to Women at Work on SiriusXM's Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. Have a great week, and don't be afraid to quit. Together. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.